KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. This is our Year in Review show. First of all, let's note that 2021 was the year we changed the name of this show. For the previous four years, it had been Trump Watch. And then on January 20th, as Biden took the oath of office, we changed the name to Living in the USA with the tagline, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Living, talking, thinking through a tough year. Of course, we started out on January 6th with the insurrection. We had commentary here from Gary Young. COVID was going strong. We had regular commentary from Mike Davis and from Greg Gonsalves. And we had Biden in the White House with narrow Democratic majorities in Congress. We had weekly political updates from Harold Meyerson. And for much of the year, we were staying home under the COVID lockdown. So we had virus time TV viewing, VTTVV, news you could use weekly with Ella Taylor. This week, we'll listen to some highlights of the past year. Later in the show, Mike Davis commented in March at the end of COVID year one and warned that the new variants were likely to prevent herd immunity. Also, Texas effectively banned abortion, the culmination of 40 years of Republican campaigning. Rick Perlstein explained that. And finally, we'll remember Rennie Davis. He died in February. Start with Gary Young's analysis of the insurrection. Gary Young, of course, is the former Guardian columnist, now professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and a member of the Nation editorial board. He's written five books, including the unforgettable Another Day in the Death of America. And he writes for the New York Review, Granta and the New Statesman. We talked with him the day before Biden was inaugurated, and I asked Gary, what was the plan on January 6th? How was the march on the Capitol supposed to work? I mean, it's difficult to find a word for this thing, right? It was definitely an insurrection. You know, it was a violent uprising against a a legitimate government. I think the people who actually were involved clearly had no plan. Their plan was to to see what they could do. And there was a a significant amount of entitlement in that. They didn't think maybe we'll get shot. I mean, one person did get shot, but they they didn't think maybe we'll get arrested. I mean, you know, which is why they put their stuff on Facebook and then quickly erased it uh, when they realized that things hadn't gone their way. But they get in there and there is no plan. They don't try and get the police on their side, although by most accounts, first of all, some of them were policemen, and secondly, they might have had a receptive audience there. Um, They're not trying to get the army on their side. I mean, when I think of coups the world over, this strikes me as something more ridiculous and something that, I mean, obviously it's important, and even though they take them, don't take themselves seriously, we should, but that it was the spectacle that they were after. And, and one way to know this is that they do certify the results, and yet those people who broke into the Capitol still claim that it was a victory, even yes. though the aim, the very aim of what they planned to do didn't happen. They still claim victory. Yeah, there was this uh, more scary moment where one of the slogans was hang Pence because Vice President Mike Pence, who 
presides over this ceremonial event had rejected this nutty idea of Trump's that Pence could simply declare Trump the winner since he was the presiding officer over the Senate. And this led them to the, the, the insurrections to say, hang Pence. They put up a, a gallows outside the Capitol and they looked for Pence, but they couldn't find him. He was hiding. <laughs> so what do you make of this effort, this apparent effort to hang the vice president of the United States? Well, I mean, first of all, it's very retro, isn't it? I mean, we have <laughs> yes. to get rid of hanging. I mean, you know, I mean, America has an awful record of execution, but hanging, I mean, and who knows, you know, one jest, but who knows what would have happened if they had got hold of Pence or Pelosi or any of those people. But first of all, you see the shrinking base emboldened. I mean, we should not write these people off at all but shrinking, that if Pence is too left-wing for you, <laughs> if Pence is too liberal, if and and if you want to hang Mike Pence, then you, you've really painted yourself into a bit of a corner there. Well, I want to go back to your point, a very interesting argument, that even though they didn't stop the Congress from certifying Biden as the winner, they left claiming that they'd been a success. And uh, let's just for a moment... Uh, consider the possibility that there was a reason they considered it a success, They that they were so delighted at what they had achieved, that they had accomplished something which they were proud of, which was, I guess, that they could storm the Capitol successfully. And, and that for them, this is not the end. This is, this is a step. Oh, yeah. No, I think that, um, I think that there was a rationale for them saying we have shown our strength we have proved our viability as a fighting force we have shown we have proved our metal and it's what's true is that almost no other protest group could have done what they did yeah they would have been gunned down that would have, that would have been it and so they have achieved what nobody else no other protest group could have achieved uh they have instilled a sense of uh, uh, fear into American political culture. They, quite small group of people driven to a large extent by some very weird conspiracy theories have established themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Now, you know, we can argue about how strong, how viable that force is, but when the nation's 50 capitals are on lockdown, when, Ameri when, when Washington, D.C., for an inauguration that relatively few people will go to because of COVID, um, is like a huge military encampment, then it wouldn't make sense to say that they've achieved nothing. They've achieved, mm. they achieved in that sense, more than any of the legal challenges or, or any of that. So... They demonstrated they could storm the Capitol successfully, and that marks the end of the Trump presidency. But it's certainly not the end of the Trump movement. 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. Trump got more votes than any candidate in American history, with one exception, Joe Biden. I think we need to talk about what's the relationship of that small number, a few thousand people who stormed the Capitol, 
and the millions of people who voted for Trump. Is this the vanguard or is this just a crazy isolated fringe? I think they're definitely not isolated. And uh, we're going to have to redefine fringe, aren't we? (laughs) It's not that this force is here to stay. It said it never went away. And now it feels emboldened. And that there will be large numbers of people who will disassociate, who can, in their mind, disassociate themselves from that particular manifestation of violence while embracing the broader, what I would call, violent assault on America. On the other hand, uh, today there's news that Mitch McConnell, you know, the Republican leader of the Senate, says he welcomes Trump's impeachment because Trump did incite an insurrection. This is like the most powerful Republican in, in Congress who's been a complete Trump loyalist for the last four years. Apparently, he has made a calculation that the political future of his party and the chances of him returning to be the majority leader in two years would be better without Trump as the leader of the party. Uh, What do you make of Mitch McConnell breaking with Trump over this? Well, you know, in, in the piece I wrote for the New Statesman, I started to say that they were jumping ship. Then I thought it's actually more like they are clambering out of a shipwreck. (laughs) The ship has crashed. And uh, there is this kind of thing, you know, where they see which way the wind is blowing, but it has to be blowing a gale before they do anything. Now, it's a gamble. It's a gamble that he's making that as to the, the viability of Trump's base, the degree to which he wants to take on that fight, I mean, there would have been a realignment within the Republican Party anyway because the president's leaving. Just there was a realignment in the Democrats afterwards. And because Trump was such an individual, really, without kind of much much roots, actually, in the party. His, his, you know, his base came not through the Republican channels, not through the orthodox Republican channels. So that realignment now will take place with this in mind but I don't get a sense and you know you said it Mitch McConnell was with him all the way right until you know the last couple of weeks he was with him for kids in cages for all of that stuff so the realignment will be around unless there is a political ideological challenge as opposed to this which is a it's important but it's a procedural challenge then there will be a realignment around the most palatable form of white supremacy and xenophobia that they can come up with. That what this, for a certain kind of Republican, what this insurrection did was give white supremacy a bad name and nationalism a bad name. And they want to return to the kind of white supremacy and kind of nationalism that kind of good old boys can get around uh, and that is can cohere as opposed to kind of divide. Now, that may turn into an ideological struggle within the Republican Party as to its future and what it might do, because free market economics doesn't need racism to operate. If there were no black people in America, you you know, you could still have a free market 
um, uh, economics. It would just be kind of, it would just be differently configured. But at the moment, that's not what I see. What I, what I see is a clambering off the shipwreck, a kind of um, a desperate paddling to shore, not to overdo the metaphor, but that one last big wave doesn't come and just kind of sink them all. He's bad for the brand. We spoke with Gary Young in January 2020. Our year in review show continues with Mike Davis on the COVID pandemic. That's coming up in a minute. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A year after the COVID-19 pandemic reached the United States, we spoke about it with Mike Davis. Mike, of course, has written many books, including The Monster at Our Door, on the global threat of an avian flu pandemic. That was back in 2005. And then The Monster Enters on COVID-19 and the Plague of Capitalism, published in 2020. We spoke about the COVID-19 pandemic in March 2021. Well, 90 million Americans have gotten at least one shot of a COVID vaccine. We expect half of the total population will be vaccinated by the end of May. Then we could have herd immunity, they tell us, in July. But you open your COVID one-year anniversary piece by saying, beware the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. Please explain. Well, it's simply the fact that when infections, when positive cases aren't controlled, something advocated as policy, of course, by the Trump administration and its embrace of herd immunity, you're constantly increasing the evolutionary space for the emergence of, of new variants. And since December, this has happened very quickly. I mean, here in California, we now have the British variant circulating, but we also have a homegrown California variant that first appeared in July. Both of these are more transmissible, up to 50 times more transmissible than the original Wuhan variant. And new variants are popping up. A Brazilian variant, not surprising, given that Brazil is probably the only country that's been worse than the United States because of presidential opposition to public health measures. And today, uh, the Oregonian paper record in Portland, there's a new uh, Oregon variant, which seems to be an independent evolution of the trait that makes the British variant so much more transmissible. So even as the number of vaccinations increases, the virus itself is becoming more and more transmissible through these variants. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's more virulent or pathogenic, but the verdict remains out on that. And there's a very great danger that animal variants, because humans have succeeded in passing it on to all kinds of domestic animals or farm-raised animals, could acquire virulence in those animals and pass back to us. That's already happened with minks, which are a common 
farm industry in, in Scandinavia. Humans gave it to minks. The minks gave it back to humans. So humans aren't the only actors here. It's almost certain that a fourth wave uh, is developing that will last through the spring, maybe to the beginning of, uh, of summer. And again, not necessarily more, more vir virulent. Vaccinations have shown dramatic ability to reduce the number of extremely serious cases and, and deaths. But we're still in dangerous territory, which makes it all the more not only reprehensible, but literally criminal that Republican governors and state legislatures, remember the Republicans control 30 state legislatures in the United States, are not only advancing uh, what's estimated to be 250 different bills aimed at voter restriction, but with equal energy and fervor about the same number of actions to end mass mandates, reopen schools, basically dismantle the public health measures that are more necessary than ever to ensure we reach a place of some, some return to normality by the summer. Let's talk about deaths that have occurred to this point. As of this week, we have more than half a million deaths in the United States. How much of that was avoidable? Well, there are are different estimates of this. Probably the most common on in the news is that Lancet, which is one of the three or four most important medical journals in the English-speaking world, explored this and said, look, if U.S. deaths had been held to the average of the six or seven other large, wealthy industrial countries, 200,000 fewer people would have died. And they directly blamed the Trump administration for this. So... 200,000 Americans died unnecessarily because of the policies of Donald Trump who sabotaged and discredited the efforts of public health officials. But you say that is not the full story of Trump's crimes. No, I mean, let me um, just briefly re review the chronology here. Up until the middle of March, the failures in the administration might be attributed simply to incompetence. Above all, the contamination of the CDC's original test kits, which meant for the whole month of February, as infections were beginning their exponential growth, we were in, in the blind. The test kits were contaminated. They could have easily been modified. We could have purchased the German test kits that the World Health Organization used and so on. So this was incompetence. In mid-March, I think it was on the 16th of March, the president issued, finally was compelled to issue guidelines about closing down uh, large public activities and gatherings and even quarantines. But at the very same time, he had thrown out the entire playbook, which the Obama administration had handed to him in 2000 at the beginning of 2017 on federal responsibility for coordinating and managing the pandemic. He said, it's up to you guys, to, to the states. And the, uh, the governor of Washington said, it was a bit like Pearl Harbor. And your reaction to Pearl Harbor is saying, well, go get them, Connecticut, build your own <laughs> battleship. Uh, this was called federal Darwinism. 
and it was, of course, disastrous. But then that allowed him to start blaming the governors and the states to whom he devolved responsibility for competing to get supplies and equipment and managing the pandemic to go on the offensive against them as job destroyers, as violators of uh, personal liberty. On the 3rd of April, he said, well, I'm not wearing a mask in public. You don't really need to wear a mask. Some people want to do it. That's fine. Absolutely under undercutting that. In the same month, the Tea Party groups, including Tea Party Patriots, Freedom Works, which it essentially used billionaire money to create from the top down the Tea Party protests in 2009, 2010 against Obama, got together in a big coalition called Save Our Country to mount mass demonstrations against closures and quarantines. And these, of course, led to the appearance of armed groups, militia groups storming into state capitals against public health uh, measures. And not only against Democratic governors and the main targets, but against Republican governors, even in places like Idaho. But I should emphasize here, this is really important, that we now tend to see all this is, is Trump speaking to his amorphous masses with these militia groups in, in the first row. That's absolutely incorrect. All of this since April, all of the resistance to public health measures, as well as the later attempts to discredit the election, have been operating through the infrastructure, the new far-right infrastructure of the Republican Party all of it with connection and funded by billionaire dynasties like the Mercer family, a private equity billionaires who were his early supporters. But this seems like completely dumb politics. Trump could have been the hero of public health. He launched the vaccine project. He could have campaigned around saving America from disease. So why didn't he do that? Well, imagine this experiment. It's uh, February of last year, and you lock a group of political scientists in a room, and you just give them the, the bare facts about what's going on, uh, the exponential increase in the disease, the U.S. emerging as the country with the highest mortality rates, Trump administration's abdication of national plan, its opposition to public health measures, Based on that data alone, they probably would have said, this guy's going to be absolutely destroyed in November. He wasn't. And the reason is, there are really two sides to this. On the one hand, Trump did everything possible using a kind of uh, political jujitsu to counterpose jobs and the economy to public health. And indeed, that was his concern from the very beginning, that the key to his re-election was the economy and jobs and his particular fetishes, Wall Street, stock market prices. On the other hand, the Democrats did an absolutely abysmal job of arguing that to restore jobs and restore the economy, a national pandemic plan was the key. In other words, to make jobs and public health inseparable. Instead, they let it divided. And before the election in October, there seemed to be a strong recovery 
on the way. It proved to be a total illusion. In December, the numbers all went south again. So I've argued in others in various things I've written about the uh, last year's election. Trump was, I, I believe, able to win 15 or 20 million votes based on the fact that people confronted with this awful choice between income and the health of their families saw him as being the guarantee, guarantor of jobs, voted for him because of the economy. I want to go back to the possibility of herd immunity and the argument that we may get there a lot sooner than it seems because of the untested people who got the disease, didn't die, and uh, recovered. Either they had very mild symptoms uh, or maybe they were asymptomatic, never tested, never diagnosed, and now they have antibodies. And there are tens of millions of these people who, were, who got the virus, survived, and were never tested. They're trying to estimate how many of the uncounted infections there are that conferred immunity because of antibodies. They say might be three in eight or something like that. In L.A. County, where we think a lot of people got the disease and were never diagnosed, that would be something like four million people. That's more than the 2.5 million who have been vaccinated in L.A. County. So if you add together the people who probably have immunity from antibodies from having gotten the disease with those who are vaccinated, uh, we're now at about 50% of the total American population and we'll reach herd immunity in the next uh, couple of months, 70% in July. Of course, that depends on these estimates of how many people have the antibodies. And it also depends on how much protection you get from having had the disease given the new variants you know something about this. What do you think? Well, if you monitor the, the medical literature on this, one of the first things you're struck by is the fact that we're still in a testing fiasco. The United States has done the worst possible job, not only in testing, but in communicating test results from, for instance, county health agencies to states and the, and the federal government. So trying to derive reliable statistics or conclusions from testing data is extraordinarily difficult, in fact, maybe impossible. Secondly, the United States, unlike other countries, not only rich countries, but poor countries like Vietnam, has done an extraordinarily uncoordinated, poor job of testing, sequencing the variants. In other words, when you have a blood test, what should follow is sequencing the variants. This is going to be done very rapidly and, and, and cheaply. So we're still in the dark about the variants that are circulating in, you know, in the population. Also, many people have experienced, you get a test to tell you what, whether you have the coronavirus now. Uh, a much smaller number of people have actually been tested for antibodies to find out if they had the coronavirus before. So all this, you know, clouds drawing those kind of conclusions, maybe or maybe not, plus the fact, and I don't want to exaggerate this, but there is evidence that people who got weak cases, there were asymptomatic cases in other countries, were then reinfected by the South African variant and possibly by, by others. And there's simply not enough research 
to draw a conclusion about this. All this points, of course, in one direction, which is the, the urgency and importance of maintaining masks and social distancing and so on. We know about some of the variants. We know the UK variant has now spread to more than 80 countries and has been doubling, they say, every 10 days in the United States and is expected to soon become the dominant variant here. You mentioned the Brazilian variant. Seems like the Pfizer vaccine is effective against the Brazilian variant. That is good news. But you and I first talked about this a year ago on this program, and you laid out the the mutability of this virus and pointed out there will be thousands of variants of the COVID-19 virus. Most of them won't make humans sick, but a lot of them will. And it's a challenge to virus scientists to, as you say, sequence these new variants. And then they're pretty confident that they'll be able to, to come up with the famous booster shots, which will then have to be manufactured and distributed by the hundreds of millions, and that will take months or more. The idea of thousands of variants is, is, a, is a scary one. Well, I mean, it's the same problem that we've traditionally faced with influenza, or that matter, any RNA-based uh, virus, viruses whose genomes are not DNA, but RNA, <laughs> and they mutate so frequently. That is to say that they are so inaccurate in making copies of themselves that they're always producing mutations, the vast majority of which don't confer an evolutionary advantage to a virus. Variations which, in fact, may make them less transmissible or, or virulent. But all this is happening so fast that ultimately what you have to think about is and, and the variations that are particularly concentrated in, in the spike proteins of these RNA viruses that allow themselves to attach to cells and then open the cells up for invasion. And with influenza vaccines, which we have to make anew every year, we're addressing variable parts of those spike proteins. But if you could develop vaccines that incapacitate those spike proteins by focusing on the more stable, invariable parts of them, then you could have something like a universal vaccine. And there's tremendous scientific evidence that with influenza, that this should be, uh, you know, should be possible. One of the weirdest things about our whole experience in the last 14 months or so is the way people are constantly talking about uh, one of Trump administration's claims is, well, this is hardly worse than the flu. You know, it kills 20, 40,000 people a year. The fact that we accept that 40,000 people a year should die unnecessarily from influenza should be something that shocks us. Rather, it's become something like homelessness. It's just naturalized in the background. We accept it as inevitable, and it's not inevitable at all. So hopefully there's will remain the, the incentive and the investment not only to continue to produce vaccines tailored to specific variants of SARS-CoV-2, but the possibility of universal vaccines. And there really doesn't seem to be any scientific reason that that's not possible because basically influenza and coronavirus, while they're tremendously adaptable, they're nothing like, for instance, HIV, 
in its constant ability to outwit antibodies. But the question is, if we achieve herd immunity, if coronavirus becomes something manageable like the flu, what will be the incentive to continue research toward more universal vaccines? We now have platforms through the uh, delivery of antibodies that are simply amazing. And there's a bunch of them. I mean, there's uh, two major kinds already used in, in, in vaccines. I haven't seen any indication of Democrats in Congress really pushing a full-scale plan for increased surveillance of emergent viruses through development of universal vaccines and, and so on. Hopefully that will happen, but that isn't visible right now. A universal vaccine should be possible. We spoke with Mike in March 2021. Our year in review continues with Rick Perlstein talking about how 40 years of Republican efforts to make abortion illegal again finally seem to have achieved their goal starting in Texas. That's coming up in a minute. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Republicans and abortion. It's looking like the post-Trump GOP might actually be worse than it's been in the Trump years. In Texas, maybe you heard, the Republicans are empowering vigilantes to go after people helping women who seek abortions, and they've deputized the state citizens as bounty hunters offering them cash for turning in their neighbors who help women seeking abortions. For comment, we turn to Rick Perlstein. Rick, of course, is the author of the bestseller Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980, a New York Times notable book. It's out now in paperback. Before that, of course, there was Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon and the Rise of Reagan, and the classic Nixonland, the rise of a president, and the fracturing of America. Rick is the former chief national correspondent for The Village Voice, former online columnist for The New Republic and Rolling Stone. His journalism and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Nation, among other places. We reached him today somewhere in Marshall County, south of Chicago. Hi, Rick. Hi, John. Always great to be with you. Well, let's start with this Texas abortion law. The GOP has been anti-abortion for a long time now, but it wasn't always. We've often been told the Supreme Court made abortion a national political issue with Roe v. Wade in 1973. But really, the first time abortion was an issue in a presidential election was before that. It was not a backlash against Roe. It was in 1972, the year before Roe, when Nixon was running for re-election against George McGovern, who they called the candidate of acid amnesty and abortion. I always thought that was unfair because McGovern wasn't for acid. He wasn't for abortion either. He wasn't either. for abortion either, yeah. So at the 1972 Democratic National Convention, um, he leaned on delegates to, to vote against the abortion for everyone everywhere plank because he, you know, for political reasons, he wanted to keep his coalition together. And actually, in, in the wonderful 
Mrs. America miniseries on Schlafly and feminism and anti-feminism, they have a magnificent reconstruction of that day on the convention floor. So not quite even fair. How did it become an issue going back as far as 1972? Yeah, it's it's an interesting and complicated story. States began putting together liberal abortion laws later in the 60s. In fact, you may recall Ronald Reagan signed one of them. He claimed he was, you know, tricked into it. And there was a loophole that he didn't quite understand. And uh, but New York had a very liberal abortion law. So it was kind of entering the books as an issue going into the late 60s. And it was really uh, a Catholic issue. The Catholic hierarchy despised abortion, right? They considered it running afoul of, you know, God's will. And uh, as this issue is beginning to bubble up, it's almost exclusively a Catholic issue when it comes to the uh, activism against it. And that's why Richard Nixon was interested in it, because he was trying to attract, you know, working class Catholics. Catholics were overwhelmingly Democratic in for decades. Democratic. So this was kind of part of the culture war agenda to attract, you know, union voters, you know, the people who would eventually become uh, Reagan Democrats. And then comes Roe versus Wade. And of course, you know, the Catholic hierarchy is 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 apoplectic, right? But the the people who become so important later in the Republican conservative coalition, Protestant evangelicals, fundamentalists, um, are um, either indifferent and in some cases even appreciative of Roe v. Wade. Uh, there's a um, very famous and very important Southern Baptist, Baptist minister who had been a segregationist uh, who said that John F. Kennedy was going to you know turn America over to the Pope in 1960. His name is Wally Criswell. I read about him in Latin Reagan land because he was really um, he was recruited by Ford and he became kind of the first Christian right pastor to really kind of um, declare himself four square for the Republican Party in 1976. Right. But when Roe versus Wade happened, he thought it was a great idea. He was on the record saying it was, it was the best thing since sliced bread. And even before that, before Roe versus Wade, George Wallace was very appreciative of abortion. And, you know, you can find some very racist language from him about how great it was that these broodmares were kind of have an option of not, you know, dropping so many children on the public dime and this terrible, awful stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really shows how abortion was often seen in the context of population control, which was this big issue we don't even really think about anymore. But this idea that somehow people had to figure out a way to keep from overpopulating the earth had its right wing. Uh, expression. And that was this kind of mild eugenics, right? That it was good that we could, that all these undesirable people could end their pregnancies. And the process that kind of brought the Protestant right wing into the abortion politics was slow. You you would see in uh, Christianity Today, which was the magazine that was started by Billy Graham. First, you see mild kind of agnosticism, sometimes verging into support. And then by 1974, you get this kind of skepticism about abortion and you begin to see things like, um, well, it's not just a Catholic issue anymore. You shouldn't be avoiding opposing abortion just because it's Catholic. And there was a lot more kind of interdenominational rivalry uh, before the late seventies. And I think basically just what would happen probably from the grassroots 
was just this sense that abortion liberated women to be sexually free and you couldn't keep, keep them down on the farm, you know, once they had that kind of freedom. And it kind of spoke to this very basic sense that hierarchy and authority required, you know, basically women's fertility to be, to be part of the natural order. And so, you know, by 1976, you do see Jerry Falwell talking about abortion as one of the terrible things that liberals were forcing down each other's throats. And then by 1977, when you really begin to see um, the stirrings of the Christian right around, you know, the anti-gay issues with the, Anita Bryant and <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly and the, uh, the feminism stuff, it kind of becomes this kind of densely packed kind of Gordian knot of issues, you know, the Satan's kind of will on earth. And it's, it's, it's of a piece with all these issues of this population of people who's terrified that the kind of social liberation movements, the sixties are beginning to, you know, mainstream themselves even into their small town, such that by 1978, as I write about in Reagan land, you begin to see some very hardcore politicking in the off year elections. But the real watershed, I think, was a guy named Francis Schaefer. And he was basically a Protestant theologian who did these kind of PBS style documentaries on how world, the world was going to pot because secular humanism was taking over. And the first one was in 1977. And it was called How Then Shall We Live? And it was like an eight part thing. And the last episode only was on abortion. And Francis Schaefer's son, Frankie Schaefer, was the guy who directed the movie. Uh, you might have seen him at MSNBC. He kind of was an apostate from the Christian right. And one of the things he pointed out was he wanted to put abortion in this documentary, but his dad said, no, it's a Catholic issue. Huh. And the son said, you know, you always complained about those ministers in Nazi Germany who didn't, you know, hold back, who held back their criticisms against, you know, Hitler. And now it's happening again. <laughs> and so he was persuaded. And then two years later, they made another documentary. And that was basically all about abortion as the cornerstone of how Christian civilization was going to collapse. So basically, by 1980, it's just completely stitched into the entire social agenda, social issue agenda for the Republican Party and at the convention, the platform pledges the party to appointing judges who appreciate human life, you know, code word for abortion. And Reagan is for a square for a constitutional amendment to outlaw abortion. Now, the Republicans have one problem for all of these decades, and that is that opinion polls show that a majority of Americans do not want Roe v. Wade repealed. This has been true for decades. Opinion polls show that there may be a majority for some kinds of restrictions and you can chip away at this and still have popular support. The rock bottom question, do you support the repeal of Roe v. Wade? Overwhelmingly, Americans have never support, a majority of Americans have never supported this. And that's always been the Republicans' big problem. They can chip away at it, but they can't really overturn it, even though they've mobilized millions of voters around the promise that they will. Today, perhaps we've reached the point where the Republican judges actually will repeal Roe v. Wade. Many Democratic strategists have been saying for years, the best thing that could happen to the National Democrats is for Roe v. Wade to be repealed because that will create intensity around an issue for Democrats where they have not voted with the intensity that the evangelicals have. I wonder if we're reaching that moment now. 
Well, I have two thoughts about that. First of all, it's always dangerous to kind of wish for reaction. So, you know, we can have progress, right? I mean, that's yes. the old, that's the old Weimar socialist after Hitler, we take over. So we don't want to mess around with this. I mean, people's lives are at stake, right? But the other issue is, uh, and that is where the actions, not just of Texas, but even more importantly, of the Supreme Court of the United States, not enjoining this obviously unconstitutional law and deciding it in this shadow docket that they use for, you know, kind of last minute death penalty appeals that, you know, creates no written record, plays into the overwhelming transcendent issue that has us fighting for democracy itself in the year 2021. And that is what rolls up the abortion issue now in the January 6th insurrection issue, all the violence we're seeing around the country. And that's that's the issue of the Republican Party in full retreat from democracy. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the Reagan coalition was a concerted and successful attempt to put together a majority coalition. And they get this remarkable landslide in 1984. Basically, they were able to win the House of Representatives in 1994. But now they only have uh, a ceiling of, say, 45 percent of the popular votes. So everything they do in order to achieve their goals, which they see in kind of transcendent and apocalyptic civilization versus barbarism terms, they have to achieve using non-democratic methods. And that takes us right back to Texas. Not only have they created this vigilante thing around abortion, they have these new voting rights bills that are empowering the people they call poll watchers to move freely within polling sites, making it a criminal offense to obstruct poll watchers in their, quote, observation of election workers. Uh, this is another side of this anti-democratic authoritarian push that you are talking about. Yes, and of course, I've been tracing this one since, you know, 1962 and, you know, Operation Eagle Eye and, you know. Operation Eagle Eye. What was that? That was where Justice Rehnquist got his start in Arizona politics? Well, not his start. He was already kind of had a nice head of steam and was a leader in the party by 1962 when he helped lead the efforts and personally participated in, you know, doing just the kind of nominal poll watching, but actual poll intimidation. You know, I wrote a big article about this in uh, Talking Points Memo, and you can find it by Googling uh, talking dogs, Rick Perlstein and talking voting dogs. Basically, this is a you know steady, 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 steady process that, uh, you know, really, this is only the apotheosis of. You know, it's but in 1962, it was a secret. It took historians like Rick Perlstein to uncover and publicize what Rehnquist had been doing in his young life. Now it is. It's one of those. It's one of those things that uh, the Trump era turned a dog whistle into a train whistle. Now it's the official policy. You know, the implicit policy that everyone in an urban area somehow is suspect as a voter is now, you know, an explicit policy. And the idea that, you know, when you when you see one of these kind of corn fed middle Americans, you know, look into a TV camera and say it's obvious that that Biden didn't win. You can hear very similar expressions, you know, all through the history of American reaction. And it really kind of comes down to the notion that, you know, American cities run by minorities, run by Democrats, Democrats are so corrupt that there really are these giant vote harvesting you know, operations. You see that all the time in 1960s rhetoric and 1970s rhetoric and 1980s rhetoric. And you know, that's why the Republican National Committee 
you know, I had to reach a settlement, you know, not to try to do all this stuff. 2016 was when that settlement uh, in a case from New Jersey uh, wasn't renewed. And in was it the Burwell case, the Chief Justice John Roberts overturned the portion of the Voting Rights Act that required Southern states to check their voting laws with the Justice Department before they initiated them. So all these things kind of come together and we have this attempt to basically force reactionary policies down the American people's throats, whether they have democratic sanction or not, through all sorts of you know, multivariate strategies. And this is just one of the many. And then you get into the whole business of how Federal Society and Leonard Leo have run this kind of this secret you know, money laundering operation to turn Supreme Court vacancies into right-wing democracy-stealing opportunities. And this is really, in a lot of ways, all these different paths kind of leading to the destination, which are policy outcomes that turn America into this feudalist 19th century country. You know, we didn't have feudalism in the 19th century, but... Uh, <laughs> okay. This whole conversation, we've barely mentioned Donald Trump. It seems like he's just kind of a small player in this long story. Well, he's one of many uh, important players. But Donald Trump is an important player because he's kind of licensed these kind of demonic energies that have been present but suppressed within the Republican coalition it's kind of open season. So you get a figure like, you know, Lindsey Graham saying Ronald, uh, Donald Trump is a clown in 2016. And then by his own reelection in 2018 is talking like Donald Trump and saying black, black men are perfectly safe in South Carolina, so long as they're not liberal, you know, <laughs> you know, so what happened, you know, Lindsey Graham, I think, you know, these, you, you have these kind of fundamentally authoritarian reactionary minds, realizing that Trump was an opportunity that they don't have to censor themselves anymore and they can achieve things through anti-democratic means that they can never achieve through democratic means. And it all feeds into the same logic. We'd always been able to kind of patch the dam against the raging of this sort of reactionary onslaught. And, you know, Donald Trump, you know, was the guy who breached the dam. And now we're dealing with these onrushing consequences. Rick Perlstein, we spoke with him in September. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Finally, we want to remember Rennie Davis. He died on February 2nd at his home outside Boulder, Colorado. He was 80. He was probably the New Left's most talented organizer, starting out as a community organizer in Chicago with SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, in the mid-60s. And then he became one of the leaders of the anti-war movement with the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. In 1967, at the height of the Vietnam War, he and Tom Hayden traveled to Hanoi and returned in time for the March on the Pentagon. They then set out to organize a massive anti-war protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. 
He hoped for hundreds of thousands of protesters, but only 10 or 15,000 people showed up after Chicago's Mayor Daley made it clear that the Chicago police would do everything they could to stop the marchers. And indeed, what happened there was later called a police riot by the commission that investigated it. Rennie and seven other protest leaders afterwards were indicted and charged with federal crimes and put on trial in Chicago. Those events were back with us in the 2020 film Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's still playing on Netflix. Rennie and his friends criticized his portrayal in the film as a nerdy guy concerned mostly with not offending his girlfriend's conservative parents. He said, quote, I feel sorry for Tony Award winner Alex Sharp, who played me. But he nevertheless urged people to see the film because its theme was the value of protest and the necessity of speaking truth to power. In the trial, Rennie and four other defendants were convicted of inciting a riot and sentenced to five years in prison. The verdicts were overturned on appeal. After that, Rennie went on to organize a much bigger and more amazing anti-war protest, although it's much less well-known, the May Day protests in Washington, D.C. in 1971. The slogan was, Stop the War or We'll Stop the Government. After mass civil disobedience there, more than 12,000 people were arrested. It was the largest mass arrest in American history. After that, Rennie went in a puzzling direction. Briefly, he became a follower of an Indian boy guru. But for the last few years of his life, he had been working on creating a network of intentional communities in response to climate change. I spoke with Rennie for a Nation magazine event after the movie came out. And he talked about his trip to North Vietnam in 1967. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while uh, we could hear American you know, bombs going off in Hanoi, okay? And basically they were trying to, you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts. And, and in, that, in the news accounts of one day, they, they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, oh, aren't you from Chicago? <laughs> so, so that's actually, it was there that I learned about the, the Democratic Convention. It was there that I made the decision, I am going to Chicago. Rennie Davis, he died on February 1st. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.